Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here this morning. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the New Testament, John chapter 9. Uh, John chapter 9. Today we're, um, today we're wrapping up our series that we've called Collision, a series in which we've been looking at uh, various people's encounters with Jesus that are recorded specifically by uh, the Apostle John. And uh, what we've found in the study is, is that while each of the encounters are unique in and of themselves, uh, there's one thing that's consistently true across the board, and that is the many men and women who had intentional or, or unintentional uh, interactions with Jesus, Jesus, their lives were seriously impacted in, in some way. Uh, this morning, I want to look uh, at an encounter Jesus had one day with a man who was born blind. And while some of, some of us may be unfamiliar with the the intricate details of what happens between the two, a statement the man makes about his experience with Jesus, uh, you all are going to recognize. It's become quite famous. Uh, since it's a lengthy account, I'm going to read just part of it, and then I'll summarize the rest for you, okay? So starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, we're told, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind, born, or blind from birth. Uh, his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him uh, begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So what happens next is the people, they take him to see the Pharisees, the religious experts, who then uh, ask him a bunch of questions about his healing. In fact, they actually question his parents to ensure this is, this is the guy, uh, this is their, their son who was blind, and parents said, yes, this is him. Uh, and so as they're, as they're questioning the, uh, the, all of them, basically they come down and they say to the guy, look, Jesus is not a prophet from God as you may think. He is a sinner. He is, he is healing on the Sabbath. He's making all kinds of outrageous claims. So just tell the truth. He's a sinner, right? He's a sinner, right? So they're basically demanding the guy agree with them publicly or else they were going to kick him out of the synagogue. But the man was quite shrewd. He answers the question this way. He goes, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So more often than not, uh, whenever we're examining an event in the life of Jesus that involves a recorded miracle, I just, I just feel compelled to remind us of how our, our worldview shapes our interpretation and understanding of that event. Um, because if you, don't believe, uh, if you don't believe in God, then there's really no, no need and point of discussion. There's no such thing as miracles. But if you do believe in God, in a God who created all things, then it's only, it's only uh, rational to believe that miracles are possible. You know, events can occur wherein the, the power of God transcends what is normally perceived as natural law and does something that we can't, we can't explain by way of of any known natural causes. And this is, this is one, of, one of those events where Jesus miraculously gives sight uh, to this man who from the moment that he was born, he was blind. 
Uh, but rather than just analyzing the miracle itself, I'd like to explore the underlying issue that gets raised even before the miracle happens, namely the issue of human pain and suffering. Because, uh, you know, that's really what's behind the question that the, disciple, the disciples ask Jesus, right? They're walking along, they, 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 they come across this blind man sitting on the side of the road, uh, begging, and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Put another way, why is this person suffering? Why, why is he suffering? And you know, that, that question is not unique to the disciples. Uh, it's a question we as human beings all ask at some point or another. When we experience pain in our own lives or when we see it uh, in the lives of others, family, friends, we witness it out in the world around us, we wonder why is this happening? You know, why? Why such suffering in the world? In fact, some people reject God because of the suffering they see. And the truth is, although pain and suffering cannot disprove the existence of God, it does pose a challenge to believers in, in terms of explanation. But it's perhaps an even greater challenge for non-believers. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, Lewis was an author, thinker, he was a late uh, Oxford professor, uh, he writes about how he originally rejected the idea of God based on the unfair, unfair cruelty of life that he saw and witnessed in the world. But he came to realize that pain and suffering was even more problematic for him as an atheist, leading Lewis to eventually conclude that suffering provided a stronger proof for God's existence than against it. And he put it this way. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the, this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, he says, atheism turns out to be too simplistic. Do you understand what, what Lewis was saying there? He recognized how modern objections to God are often based on um, a sense of fair play, um, justice, right versus wrong. So it's a commonly held belief that people should not suffer. There should be no suffering. People should not have disabilities. They should not die of hunger. They, they should not die of disease or oppression or, or violence. It's, it's wrong and it's unfair. But when it comes to basic evolution and its mechanism of natural selection, everything, everything depends on death and destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. You know, survival of the fittest. According to Darwinian theory, these things are perfectly acceptable. These are normal. This is natural. And therefore, on what basis does an atheist judge the natural world to be wrong, unfair or unjust? Intellectual consistency demands they admit that they really have no basis for being outraged at injustice, which is their stated reason for rejecting God in the first place. So what it comes down to is, if you're convinced our natural world is unjust and filled with evil, then you're, you're assuming the existence uh, and reality of some extra, some beyond nature, some supernatural standard by which you declare your verdict and uh, base your concept of injustice. Now here's, my, here's my Ray K summary. The problem of pain and suffering uh, in our world is a problem for everybody. It's a problem for everybody, not just in terms of experience, but in terms of explanation. 
And it's naive to think that, that rejecting the idea of God somehow makes the problem of suffering uh, easier to deal with and explain because it, it's not true. It makes it harder. Now, obviously, the disciples weren't atheists, right? But um, they were human, and so they raised the question. They raise it. They say, why is this man suffering? And yet within the question, they reveal their presupposition. They reveal what they really thought the reason was, saying, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. In other words, they assumed this guy's condition, his, his disability, his blindness, his suffering, was directly caused by either his particular sin or that of his mother and father. Uh, and let me just say, without going into you know, great detail, the relationship between sin and suffering can be a rather complicated deal. What do I mean? Well, in a general sense, it is true. Pain and suffering is a consequence of sin, right? In that at the dawn of creation, uh, when humanity willfully rebelled against our creator, the world went from being a place of, of peace, shalom, innocence and life, to being one of turmoil, guilt, disease and death. And it was never intended to be that way. It was man's sin, man's rebellion that brought about all the brokenness. All the brokenness, personally, relationally, socially, physically, emotionally, environmentally, all the above. At the same time, however, pain and suffering can be the result of sin in a very direct sense. I mean, if you, for example, if you, if you steal money from your company and you get caught, you're going to suffer, right? You're, you're going to spend some time in prison, or um, if you live a wildly promiscuous lifestyle and contract an STD that causes cancer later in life, it's the consequence of ignoring what God says is right, good, healthy sexual behavior. And so uh, sometimes pain and suffering is a direct result of, of poor choices that we make. And, and you know, I, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know how much John and Matthew and Mark and the rest of the disciples contemplated all this. Suffice it to say, based on their question, they believe that this man's disability, his blindness, was directly connected to somebody's specific sin, either his or his parents, which seems strange when you think about it because, I mean, the man was born blind. He came into the world blind. So how could any particular sin of his be the reason? Well, what's interesting is that uh, some rabbis in first century Palestine believed and taught that a child could sin in the womb of his or her mother. And uh, they base that belief and that teaching on a text in Genesis that mentions how Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of, of Isaac, how they struggled and butted heads against each other in life. But not only in life, the text says they struggled with each, with each other in the womb of their mother, Rachel. And so the rabbis said, sin can happen in the womb. Hence the question, Jesus, is this man blind because he somehow sinned in the womb or because his parents did something wrong? Which is... You know, also odd, considering the Old Testament is quite clear, a child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. Uh, so uh, let, let me tell you, when I, as I, the more I was studying this, um, the more I wrestled, you know, not, not with what the disciples were asking, but what, but, um, but what their question implied. Uh, that somebody had to be guilty of something here. You know, somebody, surely somebody was to blame for this man's blindness. The more I thought about it, I, I thought, well, you know, you know, I guess in some respects, this reflects the way that we um, interpret su suffering in Western culture. Um, for example, when pain or sickness or tragedy touches our lives, we ask, you know, 
Why, why is this happening to me? What have I done? What, am I a bad person? Did I do something wrong? Is, is karma after me? You know, what, what's happening? Why am I being punished? You know, we look inward and have this sort of guilt-ridden reaction. Or we have a very angry, accusatory response, and we look outward to try to find somebody to blame. The scapegoat. It's my parents' fault. It's my, it's my brother's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my doctor's fault. And in some instances, it's God who takes the brunt of our anger and our bitterness. And we point our finger at him and we say, God, it's your fault I'm suffering. It's because of you I'm in pain. What are you doing this to me? I know you're doing it. I know you're behind it. And I don't like it. In fact, I suggest this angry reaction can be even more intense when you're a religious type person even a Christian. Why? Because we, we have a tendency to cop this attitude like, you know, God, I believe in you, man. I put my faith in you. I've made a commitment to you. I, I, I do this and that and the other thing for you, and this is what I get in return? Disappointment? Pain? Suffering? What's that about? You owe me a comfortable life, God. I'm entitled to it. I've earned it. I'm a good person. You know, understand, anger and bitterness is the fruit of believing God owes you something. And a lot of people believe that. For some, it's this assumption of entitled comfort that not only drives their question, why suffering, but it fuels their frustration and anger. Now, I'm not saying that was true of the disciples. I mean, what I am saying is that their question revealed a a flawed presupposition, that this man's blindness was due either to his sin or the sin of his parents. And so they asked Jesus the question. They said, they say, okay, Rabbi, which is it? And his answer, neither. Neither, he says. Neither the man nor his parents sinned. You're off on both counts, i.e., his blindness is not the direct result of some wrongdoing. Now, what Jesus says next um, represents for some people an explanation of the man's disability. Because Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. And stated that way, it would seem Jesus was giving the reason for the man's blindness. He's blind, he was made blind so that I could do this miracle. I don't think, personally, that's what Jesus was doing. And here's why. In 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 the process of translating original text into English, translators, in an effort to kind of smooth out a reading of a sentence or or, or a paragraph, whatever, they'll sometimes supply words that don't, uh, are not found in the original Greek text. And sometimes those words can turn into more of an interpretation than a translation, which is what I think has happened here. Um, When Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him, he also goes on to say, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And for me, that doesn't flow naturally. It seems chunky. It, you know, it seems awkward to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the original Greek text has no punctuation. It's like one big, long, run-on sentence. So punctuation is determined by the translator. Uh, so in some, some sense, it can be a rather subjective deal. So I was thinking, what if we stayed very, very close to the, the, the actual original wording of the Greek text and simply changed two punctuations? What if we changed the comma after sin to a period and changed the period after him to a comma? Would it make a difference? You tell me. 
Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must do the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Does that make a difference? I think it makes a pretty big difference. Jesus wasn't saying to the disciples, Here's the, I'm going to give you the reason why this man was born blind, so I could do a miracle on him. That's not what he was saying. He's saying, here's the reason we're about to do the work of him who sent me. We're going, I'm going to heal this man so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which makes a lot more sense when you, begin, when you also realize that the ancient Hebrew prophets predicted that the Messiah, would, the Savior, would come and, quote-unquote, do the works of God, giving sight to the blind. Jesus is making a claim here. I mean, all this to say is he answers the question very simply. He corrects the disciples' faulty presupposition. And then he says, here's why I'm going to heal this man. I'm going to heal his blindness because I am the Savior. I am the divine Messiah. This is what I have come to do. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Which brings us to the miracle itself. We're told that after Jesus said these things, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. And the thing that everybody wants to know is why. Why did he do that? Why would he do that? My first thought is he did it to prove the man was blind because I'm thinking if the guy got any glimpse of what he was doing, he would have said, uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, no, don't put that nasty sludge on me. You know? But that, that's, my, that's, that's my easily grossed out germ-phobic interpretation, um, which may not be particularly accurate. Others, others, however, offer more theologically astute explanations like, well, just as God used the dust of the ground to create hum humanity, so Jesus uses it to heal this human being. Or, you know, Jesus used different methods of healing so no one could suggest he was following some kind of formula. The power was in his divinity, not in his methodology. And I think those are two those are pretty good suggestions, but the fact is we don't know why exactly Jesus did it this way. We don't know. What we do know is that by putting man, a mud on the man's eyes, he made the situation worse. Now the guy was doubly blind. Right? He was blind by birth, now he's blind by mud. So he's completely blind, you know, obviously. And then Jesus instructs him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the, the man does. He obeys. Uh, he walk, goes and washes, and as a result, he's healed and, and, and later offers a testimony of his experience. He says, I was blind, but now I see. What did he see? He saw a lot of things, but primarily he saw the love and grace of God demonstrated in his life. Now, clearly, this man's uh, encounter with Jesus was a unique one, uh, to say the least, and it's fascinating to me what happens and how it, how it happens. But in terms of practical application, what does it mean for us? Is there anything we can really learn from this that we can apply or that would help us? And I think there are. I think there are a few things. First of all, I'd say we, we learn that sometimes in the midst of suffering and the confusion that it brings, the only thing that we can really do, like this blind man, is simply trust Jesus and obey in the darkness. In the midst of the suffering, we, when we don't know what's happening or why, we trust Jesus and we obey in the dark. And uh, here's what I've found to be true in life, that God tends to reinforce our faith after we obey and trust him, uh, not before. Uh, along the same lines, I'd say that, uh, like it or not, suffering has a way of affirming our faith, and we've talked about this before. 
whatever the case, it reveals what we really believe. Because suffering brings out the best in us or the worst in us. Based on the question that the disciples asked Jesus uh, and the response he gives, I'd also say that the reason for a person's suffering, yours, mine, someone else's, is not always discernible from our human perspective. And therefore, um, we should be very careful not to draw our own conclusions that may be based on faulty presuppositions. You know, when it came to the man's blindness, Jesus told the disciples what was not the reason for his suffering. It was not because of his sin or the sin of his parents. But Jesus doesn't explain what the reason was. In my opinion, he doesn't explain that, which for me is more in line with reality, right? That's more in line with how it works in life, you know? Because when pain enters our experience in whatever way, shape, or form, it's only natural for us to ask, why God? Why the reason for this suffering? And while God always hears the question, he doesn't necessarily answer it. Am I right? Doesn't always give us the reasons. This made me think about um, Job, a guy in the Old Testament who experienced tremendous suffering and loss. Uh, And he had these moments where he was just totally frustrated that God wouldn't explain the reason for it all to him. And you know what? God never does. Never gives him the reason. And what Job's experience tells me is, if, if you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to get mad at because he's, he allows suffering, then you also have a God big enough and powerful enough to have good reasons for doing so that you and I can't possibly comprehend or conceive of. We can't have it both ways. You can say there's no God and therefore there's no reason for suffering. There's no reason for anything. Life is just a meaningless crapshoot. Or you can say there is a God, but, but I can't see the reasons why he allows the things to happen the way they do, especially suffering. Okay, but consider this. Just because you cannot conceive of a good reason doesn't mean there can't be a good reason for what God does or doesn't allow. True? To suggest, suggest otherwise is illogical. It's a non sequitur. You, 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 your conclusion doesn't logically flow from your argument. So I think it just makes sense for us to admit up front, it's impossible for us as finite creatures to fully understand an infinite creator. And here's the thing. If God were small enough to be completely understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. So in short, we don't, we can't, we won't know the reason for our suffering. But here's something we do know, that suffering offers an opportunity to demonstrate the love and grace of God in a person's life. That's how Jesus saw it. And he didn't, he didn't let the opportunity slip away. While the disciples seemed to me more interested in solving the riddle of why, because they don't say, oh, look, this poor man, he needs help. Can we do something for him? They're asking these, these, these deeper questions. They're more interested in solving the riddle of why. Jesus, he just goes to the man and with great compassion helps him. And as, as I was thinking through that, I, I started wondering to myself, you know, when we see someone who is suffering, do we see that as a, as a problem or a possibility? If someone close to us suffers from physical or mental impairment, if we have a friend who's really hurting for whatever reason, or we see men and women in our community who are, who are being isolated and marginalized and, and, and mistreated, how do we view them? How do we view them? Do we see them as a hassle and an inconvenience? more than anything else, or do we, do we see the opportunity to lovingly and graciously engage with them, thus displaying the works of God 
which for us means doing whatever we can to provide help and assistance in an effort to alleviate or at the very least lessen their suffering. That's what Jesus did for this man. And, you know, look, as I'm saying all this, please know this is rattling around in my head. I, I realize that there are some of you here this morning who have gone through or are currently going through some very difficult and painful things. I, I know that. I get that. Dark moments uh, of your own. And you hear this account of a guy, guy's miraculous healing, and, and you may be wondering, okay, but where's mine? Where's mine? So let me point out that, um, yes, it's true, Jesus healed this man's blindness, but he didn't make the guy immune to future hurts, wounds, disappointments, pain, sickness, or death. Didn't do that. Life in a broken world means no one is immune, including this man. Suffering, at some point or another, comes to all of us, and sometimes it comes back to us numerous times. And that can be a very frightening proposition. But here's the consolation. Remember what Jesus says here. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. In other words, as long as we can, because night is coming. And uh, when Jesus uses the word works here, he's talking more about, uh, more about, uh, about more than just this miracle. It's a, he's has a bigger picture in mind. He's talking about his ultimate work of redemption. Because as we've seen it happen before, in the, in the, in the midst of, of doing the miraculous, Jesus is also looking ahead to his suffering. For his dark night was, was rapidly approaching. Now, how do we know that for sure? Well, we know because just before he's crucified, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. I am finishing the work you gave me to do. And as he hung on the cross with his last breath, what did he say? It is finished. The work is finished. What work? The work of redemption. The word redeem means to buy back out of slavery, to pay the ransom, to rescue us, to free us. Jesus gave his life for ours. And it's, it's through his suffering and death that we are guaranteed that any and all of our suffering in this life is only temporary. In death, we find life because of Jesus. For in heaven he promises he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more, no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. So there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. So what happened to this man Jesus healed? Well, John says he went on to become a, a very outspoken, fearless disciple. If you read the rest of the story, you know that's true because he stood before all these religious experts who questioned him again and again, and uh, they finally got so frustrated. They, he said to them, he goes, you keep asking me questions about Jesus. Do you want to become a follower too? And at that point, they got really mad and they threw him out of synagogue. So he, he became very outspoken, a, a very fearless follower, you may, might say. Why? Because in the midst of his suffering, he found and experienced the love and grace of God. And he embraced it as his own. He said, I was blind, but now I see. And not only was his physical eyes open, but his spiritual eyes as well. He put his faith in Jesus, and it changed him forever. Because that's what, that's what genuine faith does. It changes things, it changes people, it changes us. It changes the course of our lives. Has it changed yours? I hope so. Let's pray.
Our Father, I am convinced that it's uh, important for us to talk about suffering before it hits us. Because in the midst of pain and trial, tragedy, uh, it's hard to think clearly. And we can draw some, you know, angry or faulty uh, ideas, opinions, assumptions that just, just, just aren't accurate. And so thinking about it ahead of time makes a lot of sense. For we can prepare ourselves knowing that suffering comes to all of us. Sometimes it comes and goes and returns. It's part of the brokenness of our world. And none of us are immune to it. None of us are immune. I pray this morning we would find hope and we find peace in knowing that Jesus himself was not immune. He, he suffered so that we might be ultimately healed. He was put to death so that we would have life. And what does he ask in return? Simply that we believe. And this is the good news. No matter what life brings us, uh, Father, we, we can have hope because of your love and grace demonstrated in and through Jesus, who we commit ourselves to as Savior Messiah. As we do that, give us a sense of freedom, Lord, and fearlessness. Uh, remove, remove the fears that keep us from living our lives well. I pray that you would do that for each of your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? is, do you know that that's true? Are you a child of God? You're a follower of Jesus. Here's the, here's the thing, you know, with these encounters, we, can't, we couldn't, can't get into all the things that they teach us, you know. I'm thinking about this encounter. When Jesus goes to this blind man, does he say, okay, I'm going to help you, but first, I want you to go to the temple and do this, that, and the other thing. Or does he say, I want you to go keep a few of these rules that you've been overlooking recently. And then you can go back and we'll, we'll talk about the possibilities. Did he do that? Did he do that? No, he didn't. He just went and he healed the man, asking nothing in return because of the grace of God. That is the message of gospel. And all we have to do is embrace it and believe that Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has healed us. He rescues us. He redeems us. And he gives us life everlasting. That's what it means to be a Christian. And uh, if you still have questions about that, talk to someone you know from Parkview. Let them share their faith story with you. Or certainly following the service, we have some of our protein folks who will be up front. You can come and talk with them as well. Maybe you find yourself going through a difficult time in life and there's a lot of pain and, and confusion. They're here to pray with you as well. Okay? So one thing, uh, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's almost November. And uh, before we know it, uh, Thanksgiving will be here. And some of you may know, maybe you don't, but uh, over the past two decades, Parkview has provided um, a community dinner on Thanksgiving Day uh, for people who either have no place to go 
to celebrate, have no one to celebrate with, or have no resources with which to celebrate Thanksgiving. We provide a completely free meal, turkey, and all the trimmings for the community, and we serve several hundred people a dinner from like, I think it's 1.30, 11.30 to 1.30. And you've, you've probably got, you got one of these in your bulletin. This is a way for you can, you can let people know about it, share it with the community, hand them out. Um, but also I want, you, I want you to know that today we're starting signups. If you'd like to be a volunteer for that, uh, you can sign up. You can sign up online or you can stop at our next tables. The, the, the next team out there will help sign you up right on the spot. Uh, you can also uh, offer donations, some of the food donations that we're going to need. Those are on the site as well. And the next can help you with that too. Okay. And then as we just go out, just a reminder, you know, we have some protesting friends that are out on uh, um, uh, public property. And uh, just smile, be nice. Uh, they have the right to be there. Uh, we, we're not, they're not connected to us in any way, shape, or form. But we'll be, we'll be nice to them. We'll be Jesus to them. So uh, watch where you're driving. Don't be distracted. It's going to be fear. Uh, fender benders all over the place. But, um, so I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll uh, go on our way. Lord, now I pray that as we leave this place, that we would go with a, a true sense of freedom and, and, and hope and fearlessness. Because, yes, the world can be a broken place, we get it. We get it. And we know no one's immune, but we know also that you have overcome the world in Jesus. And we have nothing to be afraid of. May we live our lives in such a way to point people to the Messiah, the Savior, who loves them and who offers grace and forgiveness. Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.